I'd like to welcome you to Prairie View Christian Church this morning. We're glad you've chosen to worship here with us. Do you have go-to people that you go to in your life? Maybe you have that one go-to person when you have car troubles. That mechanic is the best around. They've proven to be reliable. And so you trust that person to give you the solutions that you need. They are your go-to guy. Maybe you have that one go-to person when it comes to your health. They're knowledgeable, they're experienced, and they've helped you find relief many times before. So anytime you don't feel right, anytime your health is at your career, you've asked their advice before, they've been around the block a few times, and they seem to have the answer in whatever situation you find yourself in. That is your go-to person. We have go-to people for things like this because over time we come to believe that they are the best around. There's no one better than they are at what they do. They are just great at what they do. So we turn to them, we go to them, we trust them. But who's our go-to person when it comes to our relationship with God? We have go-to people for cars and health and careers, but what about our relationship with the God who created the world? Who's our go-to person if we desire a hearing with God? Who's our go-to person if we are in need of forgiveness? Who's our go-to person when we are in need of hope? Who is our go-to person when we need strength and endurance as we strive to be faithful followers of Jesus? Well, last week we talked quite a bit about endurance because, as we all know, many of us far too well, faithfulness can be very, very hard. We've been at something for a long time. We've been toiling and striving to be faithful in a very challenging situation, a very challenging relationship, and we know just how weary and just how tiring that can leave us. It's hard to be a faithful follower of Jesus when we face opposition, when we deal with temptation, or it simply feels like our entire lives are crumbling all around us everywhere we look. When those moments come, When the opposition seems too intimidating, the temptation seems too strong, or our circumstances just seem too overwhelming, we as followers of Jesus can be tempted to simply throw in the towel and just give up, and wondering whether or not what we're doing really even matters. But the author of Hebrews last week gave us five things to consider as we strive to be faithful followers of Jesus. We talked about how the author of Hebrews gives us confidence in Jesus' supremacy. We can find comfort in Jesus' humanity. We find encouragement in community. We find very stark warnings of the peril of unbelief. And we find hope for eternal rest. As we face opposition, as we wrestle with temptation, as our circumstances change and come and go and we go through peaks and through valleys, these are things the author of Hebrews directs his audience to and things that can help us as well. Now, if one huge theme of the book of Hebrews is endurance, there's another huge theme we're going to talk about this morning, and that theme is Jesus as our great high priest. Now, we talked about that briefly last week. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says that Jesus made purification for sins. That sounds like something a priest does. In Hebrews 2, 17 and 3, chapter 1, the author specifically refers to Jesus as a high priest. So we've barely started to hear this phrase already. But today we're going to look at it a little bit more deeply. The idea of Jesus as 
high priest. But to be honest, even this morning, in the time that we have here, we're just barely scratching the surface when it comes to Jesus as our great high priest. So with that, open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. If you don't have a chair Bible, or if you want to use a chair Bible, that's located on page 862. And if you don't own a Bible, feel free to grab one from the welcome desk before you leave today. So Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, but let's pray together before we read. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the time that we have to be together, the time that we have to worship you, the time that we have to read your word, and just the fact that we even got to wake up this morning. Every single day is a gift, something that is completely undeserved, and God, we're grateful for it. I thank you for the beautiful weather that we have, even if it's a little bit chilly. Uh, Just incredible to see your creation coming into bloom and new life coming into life. And uh, God, I pray that we just won't take visions like that and things that we see for granted. I pray that everywhere we look, every sound we hear, we would just see your glory through that, see your power through that, and see your creativity through that. And God, specifically, I pray that you'd give us ears to hear this morning, open hearts, that we would listen to your word, that your Holy Spirit would convict us and challenge us and encourage us wherever you see fit. We love you. We praise you. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, Hebrews chapter 4 ends in three verses, verse 14, verse 15, and verse 16. And there's a lot to be said in just those three verses, a ton of stuff that you could talk about in verses 14 through 16. So we're going to look at each verse one at a time this morning, starting with verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. So in verse 14, for the first time, we actually see the phrase, great high priest, talking about Jesus. Now, the phrase great high priest is actually quite redundant. You could say it's repetitive. It's almost as if the author is trying to say the same thing twice. See what I did there? Redundant? I wasn't... There you go. When you called someone a high priest, that phrase, high priest, already entailed greatness. You don't call a regular priest a high priest. You call a great priest a high priest. So anytime you call someone high priest, you already entail that they are great at what they do. They are different from all the other priests. So for this author to call Jesus a great high priest... That's the equivalent of some little kid saying that Jesus is the bestest priest. That's the idea that you're seeing, the bestest priest, the great high priest. Now, the author is intentionally redundant because he wants his point to be very, very clear. Jesus is the greatest priest. He is the highest priest. He is the best priest. Okay, let's say that we accept that proposal. What's so great about him? What's so different about Jesus from all the other priests? After all, there were plenty of revered and respected priests in the Old Testament. This was a very high calling, a very high honor. What makes Jesus so different? Well, we see in verse 14 that this high priest passed through the heavens. Jesus both came from heaven, being born of a virgin, fully God, fully man, putting on flesh. And he also returned to heaven after his resurrection from the grave. Jesus passed through the heavens. Our great high priest passed through the heavens, and no other priest can make that claim except for Jesus. 
This high priest is also the son of God. Now, sure, other priests may have been important. They may have been respected. They may have been revered. And yes, they were called or appointed by God to a very high calling, a very noble, honorable task. But those priests couldn't claim to be God's son the way Jesus can claim to be God's son. When you put these things together, that Jesus passed through the heavens, that he is truly the son of God, it becomes very clear that Jesus is not your ordinary priest. He's not your run-of-the-mill priest. He is the greatest priest. Okay, sure. Maybe he is the greatest priest. Maybe he is very different from all the other priests who came before him. That all sounds well and good, but what does that mean for these people? And what does that mean for you? And what does that mean for me? Well, we see in verse 14 that when we consider the greatness of Jesus, when we look at this great high priest who passed through the heavens, this high priest who is the Son of God, this high priest who is unlike any priest before him and unlike any priest after him, when we look at these things, we find inspiration. We find enablement to hold fast our confession. When we look at his greatness, we can boldly proclaim who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Regardless of how intimidating opposition may be, regardless of how strong temptation might seem, no matter how much longer we wonder if we can really hang on as a faithful follower of Christ, when we look at our great high priest, we look at him and we hold fast our confession. We boldly proclaim who he is and what he's done because there is no other priest like him. There never has been and there never will be. Now when you think about it, this talk about Jesus being this great high priest, the greatest high priest, the bestest priest, that sounds a little bit intimidating, doesn't it? I mean, imagine standing in the presence of the greatest, most powerful priest in all eternity, the holiest man who has ever lived. You'd probably be walking on eggshells a little bit in the presence of that priest. You'd want to make sure that you have your best behavior on. You'd want to make sure that you don't say anything wrong because you're in the presence of a very, very holy man. And we have so little in common with him. He seems so different than we are, so removed than we are. So we better try and put on a show. We don't have to do that with Jesus. Let's pick up in Hebrews 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So the author makes it very clear that when it comes to Jesus, even though this great priest, this high priest, has passed through the heavens, even though this priest is the Son of God, even though this priest is so incredibly different from all other priests, this priest, as perfect as he is, sympathizes with our weaknesses. This priest became flesh, just like you and just like me. As a result, he was tempted the way you are and the way I am. He suffered pain and heartache the way that we suffer pain and heartache. He suffered persecution the way these people reading this letter are suffering persecution. These people don't have to put on an act in front of Jesus. They don't have to put on some holier-than-thou facade because Jesus knows their weaknesses. 
Jesus knows their flaws, and he sympathizes with their weaknesses, even though he's perfect. Now, it's really incredible when you think about it, the idea that Jesus is perfect, the idea that Jesus is sinless, what the author just said in verse 15 near the end. I want to make something very clear. This idea of Jesus' perfection, of Jesus' sinlessness, is absolutely huge. A few years ago, I was speaking with a family member who grew up in church and had some bad experiences, and so now has kind of become the Christmas and Easter Christian. They love Jesus a lot. Maybe they read the Bible from time to time, but they just don't really like the church. They don't have a good relationship with the church. And one day we were talking, and Jesus happened to come up in the midst of our conversation, and I mentioned something about how, well, Jesus was perfect. Jesus was sinless. And that family member looked at me and said, now wait a minute. If Jesus was fully human, he couldn't have been perfect. After all, we all make mistakes. We all mess up somewhere along the line. He had to have sinned somewhere. None of us are perfect. And as I thought about what she said, it really caused me to reflect on, wow, what does that mean that Jesus is perfect? That is a huge idea. And I just want to be straightforward here. If you don't believe Jesus was sinless, you cannot claim to be a Christian. If you don't believe Jesus was sinless, you are not a Christian. Because if Jesus did, in fact, sin, if he was, in fact, less than perfect, then the cross is meaningless. The cross isn't a perfect sacrifice for sins once and for all. The cross is not a victory over death and sin and Satan. The cross is just another brutal execution of a guy who loved God but did the best he could, even if he fell short. If Jesus was sinful, the cross is meaningless. If Jesus ever sinned, then Scripture isn't to be trusted. On top of the verse that we just read that says Jesus is sinless, there are multiple passages throughout the pages of Scripture that present Jesus as a spotless lamb, a perfect sacrifice. And if Scripture says that, and it isn't true, then why would we trust what Scripture has to say? If Jesus sinned, Scripture isn't to be trusted. And if Jesus sinned, then we are condemned. Our best hope is to start offering animal sacrifices this very minute because we're way behind schedule. We are condemned if Jesus sinned. We are no better off now than we were before, bearing the wrath of God that Jesus didn't take if he sinned. John Stott writes, So the divinity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, and the righteousness of Christ uniquely qualified him to be man's redeemer. If he had not been man, he could not have redeemed man. This is the part I want you to focus on, this next part. If he had not been a righteous man, he could not have redeemed unrighteous men. And if he had not been God's son, he could not have redeemed men for God or made them the sons of God. If Jesus was not a righteous man... He could not have redeemed sinful people like me and sinful people like you. Every single one of us falls short. And we are so in need of a perfect sacrifice, and Jesus fits the bill. But if he was somehow less than perfect, we're no better off than we were before. The cross is meaningless, Scripture isn't to be trusted, and we are condemned 
to this very day. Let's pick up in Hebrews 4, verse 16, closing out this three-verse chunk. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to find help in time of need. So after all that we've talked about so far, what we know about Jesus, this great high priest who passed through the heavens, who was the son of God, who was sinless, all these great things, this high priest who helps us to hold fast our confession. You can add that because of this high priest, we can approach the throne of God with confidence. If Jesus sinned, we couldn't approach the throne of God with confidence. But the author of Hebrews makes it clear that we can. Now, other priests could not have accomplished that. Other priests could not look you in the eye and say, all right, you've offered enough sacrifices, you've confessed enough sin, you are clean enough now to where you can walk into the presence of God. You can approach the throne of God and you'll be good. You'll be safe. No other priest could promise that. No other priest had that kind of authority. And yet Jesus does. The author says that through Jesus we find mercy and grace in our time of need. There's a story in Mark chapter 2 where Jesus heals a paralyzed man. This is the story where the man can't walk. His friends try to carry him to the house where Jesus is teaching. They can't fit inside, and so they lower him down through the roof. And as Jesus talks with this paralyzed man, Jesus is criticized because he has the audacity to say that this man's sins are forgiven. Now, the criticism, of course, from the religious leaders was that no man had that kind of authority. No one could look you in the eye and tell you your sins are forgiven. Only God can forgive sins. No man can do that. Not even a priest can do that. And yet Jesus can do that because he is our great high priest. Because of Jesus, our sins can be forgiven. Because of Jesus, we can hold fast our confession. Because of Jesus, we can approach the throne of God with confidence. Because he is the great high priest, unlike any other before him or any after him. Now that's a lot to cover in just three verses, Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. But let's close out by looking at chapter 5, the first ten verses, starting with verses 1 through 4. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So with all this talk of Jesus being our great high priest, now's a good time. It's perfectly reasonable for us to ask, okay, well, what exactly did a priest do in the first place? How can we better understand this idea of Jesus being our great high priest? Well, a few things are mentioned there. Number one, in short, a regular high priest was a middleman between God and humans. There was a chasm between God and humans. Sin separated us from God, and even though the priest himself, he was sinful too, he kind of acted as a bridge between these two alienated parties. If you wanted to offer a sacrifice, if you wanted to do something to please God, then you talked to the priest. 
If God maybe wanted something from his people, then the priest would talk to the people. He was the middleman between God and humans. Now, the biggest example of this was seen in the Old Testament Day of Atonement. In the Day of Atonement, it was one day per year where the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies, the innermost part of the sanctuary. This was where God's presence was believed to dwell. And on this one day per year, he would enter the Holy of Holies. He would perform various rites and sacrifices and offerings, all made on behalf of the people while they stood outside. Again, there's that gulf, there's that chasm between God and man. The high priest can come in for one day, but the people are still at a distance. The people can't approach the throne of God with confidence. Now, the high priest would famously take a goat and he would confess or transfer the sins of the people from the previous year onto that goat. That's where we get the term scapegoat. And then the priest would release the goat into the wilderness, never to return. The idea was that the goat takes the sins and takes the guilt of the people away. Now, of course, some people have asked, now, wait a minute, what if the goat comes back? I mean, you can't really control where a goat goes. Well, there were some rabbis who would actually follow the goat and push it off a cliff. So there you go. That's how you figure out that problem. But after that was all over, after the goat was sent out, after the sins were forgiven per se, kind of, sort of, after the guilt was removed, the high priest would leave the Holy of Holies and he wouldn't come back in for another year. A year later, he'd return, do the same thing all over again. Now, don't get me wrong. The Day of Atonement was very important. The Day of Atonement was commanded by God. It reaffirmed the covenant between God and his people. God gave it to the people for a reason. But here's the problem with the Day of Atonement. It couldn't really, truly, once and for all, forgive sins. Because a year later, the same thing would have to happen. The priest was the middleman between God and men. The priest was important, but he couldn't truly offer forgiveness. He couldn't truly let someone approach the throne of God with confidence. There was still that guilt. There was still that gap. There was still that separation between God and people. Now, another example of what a priest did, he did pastoral care, you might call it. You see in that passage that he would gently guide the people, especially the ignorant people, the wayward people, the people who maybe don't know how to please God, the people who kind of need some help along the way. And the priest would be very gentle about it. He would had reason to be gentle about it because he was sinful, too. He didn't look at these people and judge them. He didn't look at these people and act as though he were better than they were because he knew that he's a sinner just like them. So he offered gentle pastoral care. And finally, one other point of what it means to be a priest that we see in that passage is that this priest was called by God. He wasn't just some bored guy who didn't know what he wanted to do when he graduated from high school who decided, eh, you know what, I'll just be a priest. I'll just go to school to be a priest. That is not the situation that we have here. Priests were specifically appointed by God to that role. It was a high honor, a high calling that you didn't just take upon yourself because you were bored. Now, when you put all these things together, the priest being the middleman between God and men, the priest offering pastoral care, even though he's a sinner too, the priest not being some self-appointed guy with nothing else to do, 
You put all those things together, and what does that have to do with Jesus, our great high priest? Let's pick up in verse 5, finishing out the passage. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We'll talk about Melchizedek in the weeks ahead. Verse 7, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So we see a few things here that bring what we just talked about in verses 1 through 4 back to Jesus. We see one similarity between a regular high priest and Jesus. Regular high priest, Jesus, neither one was self-appointed. Jesus did not just decide one day, eh, I want to be the great high priest. He was appointed by virtue of the fact that he was God's son. The author uses Psalm 2, he uses Psalm 110 to prove his point in this passage. Jesus was the great high priest because he was God's son. One thing that was different is that Jesus didn't offer sacrifices for himself and for the people. The author of Hebrews says that he offered prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. Now, if you've read your Bible much, if you've been a Christian for long, and you picture Jesus offering prayers and supplications with cries and tears, there might be a story that pops into your mind. And that story is the Garden of Gethsemane. That's the story where Jesus literally moments before he's arrested, before he's taken off to be crucified, Jesus falls on the ground and prays to God saying, God, take this cup from me, take this suffering from me, but not my will, yours be done. We see in that prayer that Jesus ultimately, even after an expression of desire to avoid this suffering, avoid the cross, if there's any way possible to not go through with this, Jesus ultimately does offer a sacrifice. But it's not multiple sacrifices. It's not repetitive sacrifices. It's not a sacrifice on behalf of his own sin, because he was perfect. The sacrifice that Jesus offers is ultimately himself, once and for all, for you, for me, for the readers of Hebrews. Jesus offers himself as a sacrifice. No other priest can say that. And finally, we read that Jesus learned obedience. Now, I want to make it clear, this is not implying that Jesus was ever disobedient. It'd be tempting to read it that way and wonder, how does this match up with what we just read? We read that Jesus is sinless in this passage. The Bible presents Jesus as sinless. So how is it that he would learn obedience through what he suffered? Well, think about it this way. We learn so often through failure. You want to learn how to ride a bike? You better put on knee pads. You better put on elbow pads. You better wear a helmet because you're going to fall a few times before you finally get the hang of it. We learn from failure. And yet Jesus is the opposite. Jesus learns from success. Throughout his ministry, over and over, his obedience was repeatedly tested. And yet Jesus never failed. 
His perfect obedience was displayed once and for all as he hung from the cross for you and for me. Now you put all these things together. Jesus being God's son. Jesus offering himself as a sacrifice. Jesus being perfectly obedient and perfectly righteousness. You put it all together and you come to the conclusion that the author comes to. That Jesus is our source for salvation. Specifically, Jesus is the source of salvation for all who obey. Now sometimes we read that and think, now wait a minute, all who obey? I just thought it was about believing in, or trusting in, or putting faith in Jesus. And yet Hebrews says that he's the source of salvation for all who obey. Should I believe? Should I trust? Or should I obey? The answer is yes. We believe and we trust and we obey. Because we believe that Jesus is our great high priest. Because he is our source of salvation. He's the greatest high priest. Now earlier we talked about having those go-to people for work in our car or answers about our health or advice in our careers. When you think about it, those go-to people that we always turn to in the midst of a bind, those are people who we trust and believe and obey. If our go-to mechanic says we need a new transmission, then we trust that advice, we believe that he knows what he's talking about, and we obey the warning. We either go get a new transmission or we go get a new car, but we don't leave the thing unresolved. If our go-to doctor says that we need to start exercising more, then we trust their advice, we believe they know what they're talking about, and we obey. We hit the gym. If our go-to career advisor says that we need to take a different job, we need to pass over a promotion that we think looks pretty good, well, we trust the advice, we believe that person knows what they're talking about, and we obey. We trust and believe and obey our go-to people. So who's the go-to person when it comes to our salvation? Well, the author of Hebrews just gave us the answer. Jesus Christ is the source of our salvation, the great high priest. He's the go-to guy for salvation. He's the one that we turn to when we need strength to hold fast our confession. He's the one that we turn to if we want to approach God's throne with confidence. No other priest could offer that. He's the one we turn to who offered himself as a sacrifice on our behalf once and for all. He's the one we turn to who was appointed by God to be the greatest priest. He's the one we turn to who was perfectly righteous, even though we are so perfectly unrighteous. And he's the one that we turn to as the only source of our salvation. He's our greatest high priest. He is our go-to guy. He's the one that we trust and believe and obey. Because he's passed through the heavens. He's the Son of God. He helps us to hold fast our confession. And this morning, I pray that as we leave here, that we will hold fast that confession of Jesus as our source of salvation. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful that your word makes it so clear that if we 
are looking for forgiveness, if we're looking for hope, if we're looking for endurance, if we're looking for meaning, if we're looking for a right relationship with you, we don't have to look far. There's only one place to turn, there's only one person to go to, and that's your son Jesus. God, thank you for sending Jesus to be a priest on our behalf, to do the things that no other priest had ever done before, and no other priest will ever do again. Thank you that Jesus is the only priest we need, that because of what he did on the cross, because of his broken body and his shed blood, we can approach you with confidence. We can find mercy and grace in our time of need. And God, more than anything, as we say every week here, thank you for the sacrifice he made. Thank you that we're no longer stuck looking for middlemen between us and you. Thank you that we're no longer stuck offering repetitive and rote religious performances of animal sacrifices, of scapegoats, none of that stuff. Thank you that you made a sacrifice on our behalf once and for all, complete and perfect. And God, I pray that as we leave here, as we face all kinds of challenges, maybe it's opposition to our faith, maybe it's temptation that we wrestle with, Maybe it's just the wear and tear of everyday life. I pray that you would enable us and strengthen us to hold fast our confession, to be faithful, and to boldly proclaim you as our great high priest to whoever we speak with and wherever we go. We love you. We honor you. We thank you for this time. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you have not yet trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you cannot approach the throne of God with confidence. I pray that you'd make that decision this morning, that you would turn to Christ, the great high priest for forgiveness, that you'd turn to him for reconciliation between you and God. If you'd like to make that decision, we'll have several elders standing at the sides of the room. They'd be happy to speak with you, happy to pray with you, happy to answer any questions that you might have about what this all means of following Christ and believing in him and trusting in him and obeying him. So talk to one of those guys this morning if you need to.